Okay, Boker Tov. Hope everyone is having a, a meaningful Yom Hazikaron. And uh, look forward to anticipating a fantastic celebration of Yom Atzmaut. Okay, this week we have the privilege of reading Parshios, Tazria, and Mitzorah. If you like one Parsha, you'll love two. Although maybe not these two. They're a little bit uh, difficult. We'll do our normal practice, which is to review the uh, Parsha broadly and then to uh, get into analyzing and dissecting specific verses. Tazria begins, and this is what we're going to continue to analyze this morning, the laws of human contamination, Tumavatara, what happens with childbirth. Um, when a woman gives birth, her status changes, her obligation to bring certain sacrifices, why she does so, so that is how the Parsha begins. It then continues, of course, with what is the bulk of Tazria Mitzorah, namely the laws of Tsaras. Tsaras are inaccurately often translated as leprosy. But the truth is, it's not a dermatological disease. It's not a skin disorder. Tsaras is more of a spiritual disorder, which is reflected in the skin. Exactly how to understand what it was, what is comparable to today. You know, some suggest, I once read an article, psoriasis, which is a skin disorder. Psoriasis sounds like tsaras. That maybe there's a connection between psoriasis and tsaras, but the truth is, it's unlikely. Because Saras really wasn't something that we would relate to as a, a dermatological disorder. So in any case, the Torah delineates the laws of Saras in great detail. Baheres, Sapachas, inflammations, burns, how they appear, what they look like, pimple-like. And uh, it has to be taken to the Kohen. And the Kohen investigates and determines whether the individual indeed has Saras. Only the Kohen can make that determination, not anybody else. Uh, and if it is determined indeed that the person has saras, then the mitzorah is isolated. They're sent to what's called outside the camp. I'm sorry. I'm sorry for the change of location for those who didn't know where we are. No, no, it's no problem. We're just giving our brief overview of the parsha. So those who have saras are considered to, uh, are sent into isolation. Indeed, they are listed. The Gemara says that there are four people who are considered to be alive even when they are dead. And one of them is the mitzorah. It's very interesting, Rab, Rav Chaim Shmulevitz, the former, uh, former mashkiach of the Mir Yeshiva in Yerushalayim, Rav Chaim Shmulevitz uh, suggests in a Sichos Musar that the reason the Mitzorah is sent Michutz Lamachana, the reason the Mitzorah's punishment, the consequence that he's sent outside the camp and he has to live that way, Badad Yeshev, in isolation and alone he lives until he's ready or she are ready to uh, re-enter, is because why does one get saras? What is it the result of? So Lashonara is the most popular reason. The truth is Chazal gave a number of reasons. But Lashonara speaking ill, gossiping. So what happens, says Rav Chaim Shemlevitz? When one person gossips about another, you make them feel alone and isolated. They feel totally abandoned, alone in this world. It's lonely. So since a person who gossips essentially leaves others feeling alone, the only rehabilitation for them is to understand what it feels like to feel alone. So they have this visible ailment. They're sent outside the camp. They live alone until they are healed and can return. Says Rechaim Shmulevitz, Mida Keneged Mida. This is measure for measure. Having spoken ill about someone else, having caused someone else to feel alone, they experience loneliness. It's the great Mida Keneged Mida. It's a great rehabilitation for them to be able to re-enter and use their speech now properly. So that's the remainder of Parshas Tazriya goes through these laws. Saras of the head and of the face, the garments. We know not only can the skin display this disorder, but so can 
Begadim, so can clothing, not only clothing, but the following parsha Mitzorah then continues, that even the house, even the home, in Mitzorah we have the laws of the purification. How does the Mitzorah rehabilitate and re-enter? And uh, the Torah there delineates, having to shave um, the head, all of the hair, and... Uh, having to purify, having to bring certain sacrifices, and so on. Then the Torah goes through the laws of Tzaras of the house. What happens if one's house indeed shows this disorder and the purification, how the house becomes purified. And then at the very end of Mitzorah, uh, we have, after we go through all the laws of Tzaras, the impurity caused by this skin disorder, which is the result of speaking Lashon Hara, or of arrogance, or of jealousy, a number of reasons were given. Then we have other forms of impurity that human beings, other contamination that we experience. Torah tells us a concept called a Zav, and a Zava, and a Balkeri. A Zav is a discharge. Um, men have a discharge, it's called a Zav. A woman has a discharge that leaves her with the status of being a Zava. For men, maybe it's the modern day uh, gonorrhea. For women, uh, it's very hard to distinguish between getting their menstrual flow and being a zava. We're not sure exactly the difference, so therefore we treat every woman. Biblically speaking, actually, the Torah delineates that a woman who's menstruating does not need to keep seven clean days. She needs to count seven days, and then she can go to the mikvah. Strictly speaking, from the onset of her flow, she counts seven days, and at the end of seven days, she's able to go to the mikvah and return to be with her husband. Why we've introduced having five days of bleeding and then needing seven days. The seven clean days are actually the laws of being a zava. A zava, which is a woman who saw a flow for three days or more, needs to have seven clean days. Seven days where she confirms that she no longer has any discharge. So why do we assume that it's a zava? So the Gemara records in Nida, that the righteous Jewish women took upon themselves, even if they see a drop of blood the size of a mustard seed. In other words, not even a full-fledged flow. But even if a woman were to see just uh, that, that they accepted upon themselves to treat it, not as the lenient Nida, who needs to go seven days eve and then the mikvah, but as the stringent Zava, who needs seven clean days and then goes to the mikvah. So essentially, our... Um, rules of family purity today are really a great stringency which presume that every woman is not just a nida, but we're really treating her as a zava. Now lest you think that this was the rabbis who imposed the stringency, first of all it's unlikely the rabbis would impose that because it's uh, probably more difficult for men having to observe the laws of family purity in most cases than it is women. So those rabbis would be looking for new jobs. Um, but the Gemara testifies that it wasn't the rabbis and it wasn't the men. It was righteous women who wanted to achieve the highest state of purity and therefore adopted that stringency. So it's at the end of the uh, parshios of Tazriya and Mitzorah. At the end of Mitzorah, we're introduced to the laws of a zava. You have what's called a, a zav, I'm sorry. You have uh, what's called a minor zav and a major zav. If a zav sees one day, then he has to observe the laws of impurity for one day. Two days, two days. Three days, then he becomes a full-fledged zav. Uh, zav. A balkari as well. If a man experiences uh, normal discharge, seminal discharge, then he has the status of being a balkari. 
which from the Torah also would result in certain rules that a Balkari has to go through a purification before he can enter the Mikdash and have contact with sacred items and so on. Obviously today we don't have a temple and we don't observe the laws of purity and impurity and that's why although there are some righteous men who after being with their wives experiencing a seminal discharge will go to the mikvah to try to achieve a level of loftiness and purity. So that's how the parsha ends. The first question that I want to ask before we even get into our topic is why, do, why does Tazria begin with the laws of childbirth? The woman who has a child. Given the sequence I just described, Tazria and Mitzorah overwhelmingly are all about saras, the contamination, the impurity of this skin disorder, a reflection of a spiritual disorder from gossip from Lashon Hara. It's only at the end of Mitzorah that we have a Zav and a Balkari, we have these other forms of impurity. Where would you have expected to find the laws of a Yoledis, of a woman who gives birth who becomes impure? At the end of Mitzorah. Let Tazriya and Mitzorah be about Saras. At the end of Mitzorah, we have then the other forms, namely Zav, Zava, Yoledes, Balkari, and so on. And yet we find it at the beginning. Pasha's Tazriya is introduced with the laws of Yoledes, the laws of a woman giving birth. I think in order to understand the answer to that question, we have to understand what is this notion of impurity all about. This is a deviation for a moment to our, our class we go through the text and the mefarshim, the commentaries on it. But I just want to give this background because I think it's something which is broadly misunderstood. And the misunderstanding has led to a lot of people's cynicism and dismissal of not only this particular area of Torah, but the challenge of embracing all of Torah because of things like this. The notion of impurity, of Tuma and Tara, particularly resulting from these discharges or a woman who's a nida, many people mistakenly think it has to do with being dirty. They think it has to do with being soiled. It's not at all. And so they think it's archaic and arcane and old. And what kind of people today in 2012, what kind of modern people, just because of basic human function and, and uh, bodily fluids, think that there's purity, impurity, contamination. That's old and outdated. That's, to think of the people as being dirty, a woman who's menstruating is dirty, has to be isolated or has to be distanced. Many people struggle with that and therefore not only reject those laws but reject even broader the Torah because they think it's so outdated. It's not at all what Tumah and Tara are about. Tumah and Tara, Kedusha and Tumah, purity and impurity, sanctity and impurity are the direct result. This is explained by Rav Hirsch. It's explained by the Nitziv, by many. Are the, direct, are the direct result of the concept of potential. When there's tremendous potential, you have Kedusha. You have purity. The concept of holiness is the ability to emulate God to create. The ability to um, contribute positively to the world. To build. To elevate oneself. The potential to grow. Is there a greater sanctity than that? To create, to flourish, to build, to influence, to impact, to grow, to elevate. That's holiness. When the potential becomes unrealized, when the potential is lost... That's impurity. Impurity essentially is almost a minor micro form of mourning for the loss of potential that wasn't realized and now can't be realized. So when a person dies, their body causes tumma. Contact with a corpse creates impurity because death is the ultimate cessation of or loss of potential. Potential comes to a standstill with death. 
And when there's discharge of that which had the potential to create, when a man becomes a, a, a Balkari, when a man has a seminal emission, that is the loss of the potential to create, leaving a state of impurity. And when a woman, what after all is a menstrual flow, the basic biology is, it's not, it is the extension of the death of an egg. The, the bleeding is actually the shedding of the endometrial lining, which becomes thickened with the expectation that a fertilized egg will implant itself. It's actually an incredible musser. The, the female body is designed, we believe by God. I don't know, an atheist would have to believe this was a freak of nature or this is a random chance. But a, the female form is designed with the expectation she will create. That means to say that it's not if the egg is fertilized, then the body takes the further steps to be able to prepare for gestation. The body presumes gestation every month and then it's, unless it's not realized. So when a woman ovulates and an egg is released from an ovary, the expectation is it will be fertilized. She will create, she will bring a new human being, a new soul into the world. And the uterus prepares itself. The lining of the uterus, the endometrial lining, there's tremendous blood flow. It thickens, preparing itself for that fertilized egg to implant itself. And when the egg does not implant itself, the lining sheds and that's the resulting menstruation. The egg is indiscernible. It's microscopic. That doesn't create anything that can be seen. It's the shedding of the lining which does. So every month the expectation is that woman has the ability, obviously with the partnership of her husband, to bring a new human being into the world, a new soul. To have the greatest form of a metatio day to imitate and emulate God in the highest level, which is conception. We imitate God in many ways. When we do good, when we visit the sick, when we comfort the mourner, when we clothe the naked, when we give charity. We emulate God all the time. We have opportunities. But the greatest and highest way we can emulate God, the closest we can come, is to ourselves be part of the process of creation. Now, it's the closest we can come because God did something much greater than we can ever do. God created with no raw materials. Ex nihilo, something from nothing. Anything we create from building a home, you got to go to Home Depot or Lowe's. To creating or bringing a human being into the world, he gave us the ingredients. Not only did he give us the ingredients, he is, of course, the most important variable. We can mix the ingredients, but whether the mixed ingredients result in a good product, it's up to God whether it's going to work or not. So of course God is a partner, but the closest we can come to imitating God, to emulating God, is to be part of that process of creation. When that is passed up on, which there are many legitimate reasons for it to be passed up on, Judaism accepts birth control when appropriate, or it's passed up without our own people trying to have children who it's unsuccessful fertilization, but there is the lack of realization of potential, that's tumma. That's tumma. So perhaps in understanding that, we can understand that that's what introduces the parsha. The concept of the, the woman who's a Yoledis, who gives birth, um, which also results in tumma, we'll talk about in a moment why, um, introduces the two parshios to tell us that the beginning of every human life is the ultimate potential. When she gives birth to that baby, that baby is an expression of raw potential. That baby is a blank screen. 
right? The, what do you call it? Tablara. I'm trying to use as many fancy words as I know today. I'm throwing them all in. All of my Latin uh, is, is thrown in today. So that, that's the ultimate potential. And that's what introduces a Parsha that deals with potential. And by the way, that's what takes us right into Tsaras. Because what is Tsaras? It's the result of the human being violating their potential. The greatest gift the human being has is the power of speech. What differentiates us from an animal is our high-level communication. An animal barks or meows, an animal grunts, an animal can understand or somehow communicate. Ask any dog owner, they'll tell you their animal, they know exactly. But the reality is that only human beings have meaningful communication, have articulated communication, have high-level, advanced, sophisticated communication. That is why the human being was created. In the beginning of the Torah, when it describes, it says, God breathed into our nostrils the breath of life. He filled us with the ability to speak. The ability to speak. Unklish translates as the breath of life. What differentiates the human being, what makes us categorically different than the animal, is our ability to communicate. It's a magnificent insight, by the way. What is the basic purpose of our ability to speak? When Adam is created, who is he supposed to speak to? No one's around. Ah, they are around. Who is he supposed to speak to? Hashem. So you see that the core purpose for our power of speech is to speak to Hashem. Ah, I can also use it to speak to my wife and my parents and my kids and you? That's great. But basic purpose of the power of speech is tefillah, is to speak to Hashem. So the basic definition of a human being, what differentiates us, what makes us categorically different, is our ability to speak. That's our potential to create the world. God created a world through speech. Baruch she'amar olam. We have the ability to create worlds, to build people, to advance life through speech. When a person uses that power of speech for lashon hara, for gossip, and it results in saras, they have violated their very definition of being a human being. We have violated our very potential of what we can do for the world, and therefore. That's Tummah. You become Tummah. The loss of potential. What I could have done with that speech. What I could have done with those words. Become Tummah. So maybe the Oledis introduces the entire Parsha of Tummah because it is the concept of when we bring a new child into the world. That child is the embodiment of potential. And that's what Tummah and Tara are all about. That's what the rest of these Parshios are about. So, with that, let's look at the Pesukim themselves. According to my copious records, namely a sticky note in my Chumash. Um, I believe last year we, we started and we got up to Pasuk Dalit. So we're up to Pasuk Dalit. Right, the Torah until now describes if a woman, when a woman conceives and gives birth to a boy, she's Tamea, she's impure seven days, like a Nida. On the eighth day is the Bris. Then brings us up to Pasuk Dalit. tahara. Bechol Kodesh Lo Siga, Viela Mekdash Lo Savo, Ad Melos Yimei Tahara. The halacha is that for 33 days she has the status of being pure. Now that's amazing because she's bleeding. A woman does not stop bleeding. The afterbirth and the bleeding that uh, continue after childbirth don't stop after seven days. For many, they continue four, five, six weeks and beyond. But she, this is unusual bleeding. Despite her bleeding, says the Torah, 
seven days, right? The Torah describes she is contaminated for seven days like a normal state of being a nida. On the eighth day, her son has his bris, and the next 33 days, despite the bleeding, she's pure. Now she's in a very in-between kind of limbo stage. She can't have contact with kudshim, with consecrated foods. She can't enter the Beis HaMikdash. Because while on the one hand she's not impure, she's Yemei Tahara, she's in her days of purity, on the other hand, she hasn't achieved the Kapara, she hasn't achieved the full status that would allow her to have contact with Kodshim and enter the Beis HaMikdash. So when you give birth to a boy, you have 33 days of, of Tahara, Yemei Tahara, of being Tahara, even despite seeing blood. Vim Nekevaseleit, continues the Chumash. And if she gives birth to a daughter, So now she's not impure for seven days. If she gives birth to a daughter, she's impure for two weeks, 14 days. And how long is she pure? Even if she bleeds? 66 days. Basically double for a girl than for a boy. And then at the conclusion of 33 days for a boy or 66 days for a girl, then what happens? At the end of her days of purity for a daughter or a son, she brings a sheep within its first year of life as a korban ola, and she brings as an elevation, and she brings a young dove or a turtle dove, a pigeon, as a chatas, as a sin offering. El Pesach Ol Moed to the entrance of the Oal Moed. V'ikrivol if Hashem, it's offered before God. V'chiper Aleha, it's an atonement for her. V'tara mimikor dameh, she becomes purified from all of this bleeding. Zos tarasa yoledes azachar lenikeva, these are the laws of a woman who gave birth to a boy or to a girl. She doesn't have access to a sheep. She could bring two doves or pigeons. One is the elevation offering, one is the sin offering. Provides atonement and she becomes forgiven, pure. Now, we've got to go through. What's the symbolism of these animals? Why the double length for having birthed a girl instead of a boy? What chatas? What do I mean vichiper? Atonement. What did she do wrong? She did something very right. Continuity. She brings a new child into the world. It's unbelievable what she's done. The pain that she suffered, the anguish she experienced, the patience she's displayed to her husband. It's unbelievable. <laughs> she should be given a medal of honor. She has to bring a korban chatas. These are the questions that we have to examine together. So, first of all, why the double? Why the double amount of time? Because the girl has the potential. Oh, exactly. So, given our explanation of the notion of tumma and tara, potential and cessation or lack of potential, when a woman carries a, a, a boy, when she's giving birth to a son, so she's it's one potential represented, but her daughter also has a womb. And when she carries a daughter, the daughter herself has the potential. So therefore, if she, once she gives birth to the daughter, there's a dual cessation of potential. 
her own. She's no longer imitating God and creating because she's now given birth. She's completed the process. And her daughter, who herself was the... Uh, had potential because this baby girl also has a womb and the potential for potential. So, I'm sorry. Should be half the time rather than double. Well, it's double time because tumma <laughs> is the loss of potential. So when you carry the daughter, there's a double potential. There's the mother's potential and the daughter's potential. It's the double loss of potential. So that, first of all, explains that uh, that notion. It's a loss not not of potential in the sense of, like a nida that there's an egg which is unfertilized. It's a, I shouldn't say the loss of potential, but it's the end of imitating God. It's a separation. For nine months, it's the experience of imitating God. Nine months, a woman walks around and she says, look at me, I am the greatest imitation of God that exists in our world. I am creating. In my womb is the birth of a new world, a world incomplete. Right? Every child that's born is an entire world. Every person that dies or is to save a life is to save a world. So for nine months, this woman walks around and she says, Look at me! I am the greatest imitation of God available. She doesn't likely say, Look at me, or want anyone to look at her. And hopes that no one will look at her. And it doesn't go for nine months. It goes for four and five months, as little as possible, as long as she can delay. But she is the greatest symbol of potential of imitation of God. Once she's given birth, she just goes back to being a woman. <laughs> she goes back to being like any human being, like anybody who... It's noble, but she's imitating God in another way. If she's breastfeeding now, she's nourishing that child, just like God feeds us, just like God nourishes us. She's nourishing. It's amazing. I was having a great conversation with my daughter. I was driving last week, and on the radio, it was after these controversial remarks were made uh, in which uh, certain... Uh, political spokesperson dismissed Ann Romney as she's never worked a day in her life. And the whole controversy over whether if you're a stay-at-home mom you've ever worked. So it was, you know, I used it as an opportunity to have a conversation with my oldest daughter. And we were talking about is it work to stay at home, not work to stay at home. And she said, you know, well, just to show my daughter has been born into a world of modernity, how did it, she says, how did it ever become the, the standard or the default or the assumption that the husband is the breadwinner and the mother stays at home raising kids? Why can't the father stay at home raising the kids and the mom be out and be the breadwinner? And then, of course, we had the conversation that said, in some scenarios they do, and there's nothing wrong if that's the decision between the two. And financially, in many cases, both the husband and wife do need to work. And it's all, there's nothing that, that prescribes specifically what needs to be done. But I explained that the Torah, in a very traditional view, is that women have, doesn't mean there aren't exceptions to every rule, just like you could say on the whole, men are taller than women. Does that mean you won't find a very tall woman who's taller than most men? You do, but the rule still is true. So, so too, women on the whole are much more nurturing and nourishing than men. And that's not only true psychologically or emotionally, it's true biologically, as I said to her. I always told her, I said, I've always been jealous of your mother with each of these children. She gets to carry, have the experience of you kicking and turning inside, knows what it's like to, to, to carry from a millimeter um, fertilized egg to the birth of a fully developed, incredible human being, and then spends afterwards time directly using her body to nourish and nurture and feed you, to sustain and give you life itself to keep you going. That's unbelievable. Men don't have that capacity. So just like biologically the female form was designed to nourish and nurture more than the male form, and that's undeniable, nobody could debate that. So, so too, psychologically, that's, that's uh, many people assume 
true as well. It doesn't mean that you can't have exceptions to the rule. Anyway, we got to have this, uh, this fascinating conversation. So, the, in a certain way, it's actually the praise. The fact that there's a double length of purity and then of, I'm sorry, double length of first impurity, then purity for, for a girl, then for a boy, is a admiration for the fact that when the woman carries the daughter, there's not only her potential, her imita- having imitated God, but her daughter's potential to imitate God. And the fact that both of those have now come to a completion, to an end of their term, literally the end of her term, she's given birth, and her daughter's potential is no longer carried within her, the dual potential, the potential now for her grandchildren. So that is why she has the, the uh, double length. Interestingly, the, uh, if you look at the Ramban, the Ramban quotes another reason. If you look, the Ramban has a lengthy comment here on Pasuk Dalaj, on the word Teshev. What does it mean, Teshev Bidmei Tara? She sits the days of her Tahara. That's not normally sitting. We describe Nida as being sitting because you're kind of passive during that period. You're not as active, so you're sitting. So Teshev is a language for being a Nida. And here we've just described something which is being Tower, you're pure. And the Ramban, Rashi struggles with it, the Ramban is struggling with it. And they answer essentially that Teshev reflects that even during her time of Tahara, that she's pure, she's in this limbo in between stage. On the one hand, she's pure. On the other hand, she can't eat Kudshim or go into the Beis HaMikdash because she's not hasn't achieved to her full level of kapara. But at the end of this comment, if you look at the last paragraph of this comment of the Ramban, the Ramban says, Why is it a double length for a girl? He quotes the Ibn Ezra, who quotes Rabbi Yishmael from the Gemara. Interesting. He says, When is the completion of the male form in gestation when a woman becomes pregnant when is it hazachar nigmar the man is complete at 40 days the 41st day and the girl the 81st day that was the opinion of Rabbi Shmuel. Rabbi Shmuel was the, the opinion and it probably reflected his contemporary understanding that the male form became complete 41 days after gestation, after conception, and the female form, 81 days. In fact, and, if, and the Chachamim disagree, the Ramban continues, Men and women are both the 41st day. Men and women are both the 41st day. That 40th day, therefore, takes on great significance in Halacha. That means to say that it becomes a human being distinguished as a boy or a girl on day 41. Day 40. Therefore, the Gemara concludes the Gemara Nyavamos. It says, Ad Arboim Maya Baalmahi. We, and this has a lot of consequences, it's not our topic for today, abortion, stem cell research, and other, until 40 days after conception, for the first 40 days of conception, it's simply embryonic fluid. Does that mean it's not a life? Can a woman have an abortion before day 40? Is the, after, the morning after pill therefore permissible in Jewish law because it's only Maya Ba'alma, it's only gestational fluid, it's not yet life? It's a complicated topic for another time. Because even though we only view it as Maya Ba'alma, gestational fluid, we view it also as potential life. And Allah says, not only are we not allowed to destroy life, we're not allowed to destroy potential life. So a fertilized egg, even though for the first 40 days, does not yet have the status of life, 
It is the status of potential life, which we are also forbidden from ending, though our rules will be much more lenient. If the, so there are many more heterim in the first 40 days than there would be at later stages of pregnancy. In fact, this is consistent, by the way, with medicine. Do you know that one-third of pregnancies end in miscarriage? Many people don't realize how high that number is. One-third of all pregnancies end in miscarriage. That means to say that there are many women who have had miscarriages who didn't even know they were pregnant because they thought they had a heavy flow. They thought it was just a heavy menstrual period. They didn't even realize that they were pregnant. One-third of pregnancies end in, in miscarriage because it's Maya Ba'alma. Those first 40 days, it's embryonic fluid. It doesn't yet have life. So the Mishnah, the Gemara, the Mishnah and Gemara Nida <coughs> elaborate on this and say that has a lot of consequences in Halacha. <coughs> For example, the Mishnah says, Hamapelas liyom arba'im if a woman has a miscarriage before 40 days, do these laws apply to her? Purity and impurity, 7 days, 14 days, 33 days, 66 days. No, because it wasn't a child. No, it doesn't apply because the first 40 days it wasn't yet a life. It wasn't a child. Only from the 41st day and on does she have to sit. By the way, today, if a woman has a miscarriage, we tell her she can't go to the mikvah if it's early enough on that you don't know if it was a boy or girl, before day 14. Now, it's unlikely she'd be able to go anyway because she's going to bleed more days than that. But even if somehow uh, she had a DNC that removed most of the blood that she didn't bleed, she wouldn't be able because we'd have to say, since we don't know if it's a boy or a girl, you have to be strict that maybe it was a girl and you can't go before day 14. So that part of the halacha remains relevant even until today. There's many other consequences to this 40-day barrier. For example, if a woman had a miscarriage before day 40 and then she was pregnant and had a healthy son, would that child be the Bechor? So if it's before day 40 she had the miscarriage, then absolutely, she was never pregnant. If it was after day 40, then she was pregnant, and that child is not the Bechor. Even though he doesn't have an older sibling, his mother had been pregnant. And, you know, would there be a pigeon I've been for him? And so on. It depends. Was it before day 40? Was it after day 40? I'll tell you another interesting thing. The Gemara Brachos says, Gemara Brachos says, you have until... 40 days after conception to daven for it to be a boy or a girl. 40 days and on, it's determined. The Gemara says it'd be a tefillah shav. It is a wasted prayer because you're davening for a miracle. At day 40, it's already been determined if it's a boy or a girl and therefore you're davening for a miracle. We don't daven for miracles. By the way, that's the Bavli. I uh, dug up a Yerushalmi it's not popularly known who says you can daven throughout the pregnancy because since it's not known to us this was before the time obviously of ultrasound so therefore it's not a revealed miracle you're davening for and just like the famous story of Rachel and Leah where Rachel davened and therefore was reversed and I'm sorry Leah davened Rachel didn't have a son so it was reversed and so on the, in utero this transfer that took place miraculously Yerushalmi says you can continue to daven but that's another consequence of this 40 day mark that at 40 days it's determined and therefore you cannot continue to daven. By the way, science today says that's not true, 40 days. Because whether it's a boy or girl is determined at the moment of conception. The chromosomes, the integration of the sperm and the egg at the moment of conception will determine by chromosome whether it will be. But I read in a science textbook a few years ago, that might be true in terms of the chromosomal determination, but the actual genitalia only are formed Interestingly, science says when? The 40th, the 40th day. Oh. So, not a coincidence, I'm sure. So maybe that also means to say that 
for those 40 days it wouldn't be a miracle to change even if the chromosomes were determined at the moment of conception there isn't the the uh, the genitalia are deter- the external genitalia aren't determined at that point and therefore there would still be the possibility to change just hold your questions one more point so the Mishnah Nida continues and says Rabbi Shmuel Omer this is what the Ramban was referencing if she miscarried on the 41st day following conception she observes the laws of a male Yom Shmonim Ve'echad, if she miscarried on the 81st day, she sits Lezecher, Lezachar, Ulanikeva, Ulanida. Observes the Tumma laws of a male, a female, and a Nida. Why? Shazachar Nigmar Larbam Ve'echad, Vanakeva Lashmonim Ve'echad. The basic form of a male is completed on the 41st day, and the basic form of a female on the 81st day. That was the opinion of Rabbi Yishmal. Chachamim Omrim Echad, Briyas, Lezachar, Ve'echad, Briyas, and Nikeva, Zevazar, Boy, Ve'echad. Which again is our assumption. Now I'll tell you something fascinating. Aristotle, in his De Historia Animalium, I totally butchered that as well, Aristotle in one of his works declares that the male fetus is endowed with a rational soul on the 40th day and the female on the 80th day of distinction. Isn't that interesting? That Aristotle writes that? This uh, distinction corresponds to the respective periods of impurity that we have in our parsha, but also follows uh, Rabbi Shmuel, Aristotle Paskin like Rabbi Shmuel, not like the Chachamim. We assume, of course, the Chachamim to be more correct. Aristotle's representation of animation as occurring on the 40th or 80th day, depending on the sex of the fetus, was later incorporated into both canon and Justinian law. Interesting. 40th and 80th day. So you see Aristotle... It's consistent with what Rabbi Shmuel thought in the in the Mishnah, and it later made its way into these different uh, into these different law systems. Could have gotten it from us. Probably. Yeah, sure. There's no question about it. No question about it. Okay, so that's in terms of the lengths of time. It's in terms of the um, the double for the law for the birth of a, a daughter more than for a son, and it is this concept of. Um, this concept of Tummah and Tahara. Okay, continuing. Continuing. The uh, Balatur makes a comment on Pasuk Vav, verse 6. It says, And when she completes it, now we have the process of her purifying herself. So, she brings this sheep, and she brings dove and pigeons. Now, interestingly, the Pasuk says, Uben Yona. Osor lechatas, verse six, right? She brings a uh, a dove or a turtle dove as her chatas, as her sin offering. So the Balaturim notes, everywhere else in the Torah, where the individual brings turtle doves and doves, it always says turtle doves first. It always says tor before yona. Yet in our Pasuk it says she brings a Yonah or a Tor. Why? So answers the Balaturim an incredible message. Because everywhere else in the Torah you bring two. But here you're only bringing one. There's an amazing characteristic about a Tor, about a turtle dove, that doesn't exist with other species of animals. And that is an incredible loyalty between the male and female turtle dove, the male and female 
Torah. Therefore, says the Balaturim, the Torah is trying to teach us. In the singular, if you find a Yonah, if you find a dove, bring the dove. It's not either a Yonah or a Torah, whichever you find first. Look for a Yonah, try to avoid having to bring a Torah. Why? Because if you bring that Torah, you're separating it from its spouse. And that will cause incredible pain for the spouse. Who will be Misabel love? She will mourn for him. And she'll never remarry. That's the level of loyalty between those birds. So the Balaturim says this law is cultivating and refining within us a sensitivity and an admiration to those who practice the character trait of loyalty. It's an amazing statement of the Balaturim. It's an incredible Balaturim. Rabbi Simcha Zissel's Broid, the altar of Kelm, the uh, Rabbi Friend uh, points out, says two insights from this Balaturim. First, we see how sensitive the Torah is to the feelings of the pigeons and doves. So we can imagine how sensitive we have to be to the feelings of human beings. If this is the Torah's level of sensitivity that it mandates to these birds, then all the more so the sensitivity we have to show to others. And secondly, that the Torah appreciates loyalty. Loyalty is a Jewish value. Being loyal. So the loyalty of the the Torah, of the pigeon, is rewarded by our trying to avoid separating the male and female pigeon from one another. Loyalty is something that we, we value. It's something that we emulate. And Rabbi Friend goes on to point out that the Ramban elsewhere also has this, uh, has this concept. Very interesting comment of the Balaturim. Okay, continuing. Now why does this woman need kapara? What did she do wrong that she needs to have kapara? So, the Ramban has a famous comment here. Pasuk Zion. Right? Verse 7 said, she brings these animals before God. One of them is a korban chatas, a sin offering. One is a korban ola. I forgot to mention one other thing. The Rav David Hoffman says that really the man, really when she's pregnant with either a boy or a girl, it should be the same length. Namely, 14 days of impurity and 66 days then of purity. Why is it adjusted for the man? Because of the bris. So that she could be pure at her son's bris, we, we lessen the length for the boy, that if she gave birth to a boy, we say only seven days. Which means by definition, she'll be pure at her son's bris. There's a sensitivity. Maybe Rav Zavitzvi Atman got that the Rishonim already explained why is the bris on the eighth day? To give the woman the opportunity to recover, you want her to be fully present and participating in the bris. He goes, ah, let her be in the hospital. Ah, let her be at home. We'll go have a party without her. Torah has a sensitivity. No, of course, she put in all the work. She should be at her son's bris. There was so, an interesting study made, this is years ago, about the, uh, the level of uh, <coughs> vitamin K, which is a coagulating yes. factor, was the highest on the eighth yes. day. On the eighth yeah. day also, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very interesting. <coughs> okay, so the Nabban in a famous commentary on Paul's Zion says, First thing he says why she's bringing this korban of kapara is she experienced a miracle. Her womb was ultimately abused and destroyed during this birthing process. Right? The, the female body during birth is it's, light, it's literally life-threatening. A woman benches Gomal after giving birth. 
she has experienced a life-threatening experience. All the rules of someone whose life is threatened, violating Shabbos, suspending the laws of Shabbos, and so on. And, and physically, in modern medicine as well, we treat a woman in childbirth, she's in a moment of trauma, essentially. It's a moment of trauma. And her body afterwards looks like it's just been through trauma. Her, her uterus takes a while to restore itself, her body to go back to normal, to heal itself. So when it does, at the end of 33 or 66 days, says the Ramban, she brings this korban, Ki Hashem Yisala to acknowledge and to thank God, who is the great healer, who has allowed her to reheal. Right? right after giving birth, she thinks, oh my God, it's my body, me, I'll never be the same again. <laughs> the fact that she can go back to being the same, please God, is an amazing miracle. She acknowledges and thanks God for that miracle. That's why she brings benches gomel. In fact, we have today, it's brought down in the Mishnah Brewer, and the Bir Halacha and others, that the first time she's able to go back to shul, following having given birth, her husband is entitled to an aliyah. It's one of the kedimios, it's one of the, in the hierarchy of who gets an aliyah, even above a yurtzite, is a man whose wife is first time back in shul after having given birth. It's the modern equivalent of this korban, of this benching gomel. She benches gomel also as well when she comes back, because that's the miracle. She's been in a life-threatening situation. She has, she has survived trauma, crisis, and she therefore... Um, she therefore thanks Hashem. It also has another interesting is a woman allowed to electively um, schedule her birth? Are you allowed to, um, what do you call it? Induce. Induce, thank you. Elective induction in halacha. Are you allowed to? So if it's, if it's medicinally um, mandated, indicated, then of course 100%. If the doctor feels the fluid is low, the time has come, the, mm-hmm. absolutely, there's not a hesitation. But let's say she says, my, my second daughter was born on January 2nd of the year 2000. She missed being a millennial baby by two hours. It was Saturday night. All Shabbos, Yucheva was in labor. Saturday night at uh, like two in the morning she gave birth. Otherwise she would have been a millennial baby. So you know that on any of these dates that people get excited about, there's a mad rush. They want their baby to have a certain birthday. They want their baby, they want their scheduling it around someone's vacation. Are you allowed to electively induce to be able to get a certain birthday, to be born in a certain month? It's in the end of December, you want the tax deduction, so you want to induce to get that baby in before the new year. Is it permissible? So the halacha says no. Why? Many do it. Again, if the doctor indicates it, then of course it's allowed, but for these elective reasons, it's not, it's not appropriate. Why? So one interesting reason, the Tshuva's Bear Moshe, Rav Moshe Stern, the Debetzina Rav, he says, you ready for this? Bittel Torah. Bittel Torah. What's the Bittel Torah? The husband's not going to be in the base measure, he's got to take his wife to give birth? No. What's the baby doing in the womb? Learning, learning with the Malach. <laughs> so let, it, let the learning continue until God says it's time for the Chavrusa to end. You're going to electively induce. It's Bittel Torah, he writes. The, the other reason brought down more mainstream reason in Shuvas is that when a woman is in labor, it's in a life-threatening situation. It's pikuach nefesh. You can't choose to go into a pikuach nefesh situation. So to choose when to be induced is to try to play God and put her into a life-threatening situation with the assumption that God's going to save her life. When God puts her into the life-threatening situation called childbirth, that's appropriate. Nothing we do about it. That's That's 
way it's supposed to happen. But to, and, and if the doctor says we need to put her into the life-threatening situation because it's appropriate medically, that's, that's appropriate. But to electively do it to get a certain birthday or the tax deduction, we're not allowed to put into a life-threatening situation. So the Ramban continues. So that was number one. The reason you're bringing one korban is you're thanking God having survived this life-threatening situation. Second reason of the Ramban, this is one of the great comments that people love to quote. At the moment she's having contractions, you know what she's screaming? She's screaming bloody murder at her husband. <laughs> you low-life jerk, mamzer, no good, Icevarf. I can't believe you did this to me. You put this me in this situation. You're putting me through this pain. And she swears, she takes an oath. I will never be with you again. We're done. And never sleeping with you again because I'm not going through this pain again. Literally, that's what the Ramban writes. Literally. Since she's swearing, taking an oath as a result of the pain, this is not a realistic oath. She's not divorcing her husband. So the Torah is giving her the out. Saying, don't worry. This is standard. We know the pain you were going through. You didn't mean it. We're giving you the out. God is very deep, all-knowing, compassionate. So God kind of gives this universal korban so that they don't have to go into marriage counseling after the childbirth. Hashem says, every woman who's given birth offers a sacrifice because every woman who's given birth is cursing out her husband and swearing she'll never be with him again. So God builds into the system the out as a result. And that's why she has to bring a korban chatas, a sin offering, for the sin of having cursed out her husband, denigrated him, dismissed him, condemned him, criticized him, and absolutely beaten the gajibis out of him in the labor room. That is the opinion of the Ramban. The Kliyakar of Lunchitz in, in uh, Pasuk Ches also comments on this. Writes the Kliyakar. Kapara Zuhi Avon. Can you imagine why else would a woman in childbirth need a kapara? Why else would she need atonement? What did she do wrong? The answer is maybe she didn't do anything wrong, but maybe her species reminded, remembered by the pain she's experiencing now, did something wrong. Kapara zuya avon akadam shel chava shegaram latsar haleida so he says, you know what the kapara is for? Chava. Why is she in, ch- in pain to begin with? Because when Chava encouraged, persuaded Adam to eat from the Eitzadas, it was her fault. Of course, it all is traced back to a woman. <laughs> it's all her fault so since she persuaded her husband to eat so he had his punishment we have our punishment we work women's punishment was the pain of childbirth some actually believe that that's why women should give birth naturally because since God gave that as the kapara for women as a result of Chava's action it would be wrong to use drugs you know, I once heard. You know what the Boca the version the Boca definition of natural childbirth is? Giving birth without your makeup on. Oh. That's natural. Boca natural childbirth. 
So the woman gives birth. My wife asks for an epidural. The second she sees the second line on the pregnancy test, she's ready to go for the epidural. But when she gave birth in Israel to my first daughter, she was born in Shari the Hospital, and there was a labor coach, a very firm woman, a very righteous woman. She tried to persuade my wife that it should be natural and it's a kapara for women and for your family and it'll be beautiful for you. And uh, she tried to get worked deep into the labor trying to get past the point of no return where you can't get the... But the Chavit would not have any of it. So, um, so the Kliyakar says, you know what the Chiper Allah, the, the Kapara is? Because the Kapara for all women, for the Chait of Chava. And that while she was in childbirth, she too was swearing, Klape Mala, at Hashem. Why me? What did I go through this for? What was the point of this? And the evidence is the Kliyakar is that the verse attributes her need for atonement to Mimakor Dameh. Makor Dameh means from her very feminine core, namely that which she had in common with Chava. And then the uh, Kliyakar continues by giving the same explanation of the Ramban and goes on. I want to give a third possibility. There's an amazing Medrash in the Medrash Rabbah. The Medrash Rabbah in Vayikra writes the following. Isha ki sazria. When a woman gives birth, and the Medrash says, this is a reference to the Pasuk, Hain ba'avon cholalti. In my iniquity, Rabbi Acha Amar. So Rabbi Acha teaches the following. Listen to this. Even if you're the most righteous person in the world, it's not possible to have some taste of iniquity. Amar David said before God, Ribona Olami, Master of the Universe, He says, My father. At the moment he was with my mother when he was conceiving me, was he thinking, I want to have an incredible son who will write the book of Tehillim, a great Talmud Chacham, a warrior of the Jewish people? He was thinking, Lahana Aso. He was thinking, this feels good. I, I have a libido. I'm interested in this. It's an unbelievable medrash. Teda. After they finished, my mother and father, they each turn their faces in opposite directions. The You, God, were the one who formed me. My parents had a fun night. My parents had a little lachayim, had a nice drink, dimmed the lights, and had a fun time. And were concerned with having a beautiful evening of pleasure. You, God, were the one who brought me into existence. I'm, I, unbelievable, the Medrash. David Amar, and that's what David meant when he said, Ki avi azavuni What we say for the whole month of Elul, my father and mother have forsaken me, mm-hmm. you God gather me in. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That my father and mother, they weren't trying to bring me in. I'm just the result of their party. You God were the one who brought me in. So Amar Bar Abba, Eina Isha Kolatas Ella Achar Nidasa. So maybe the kapara is after the birth of the child. It's thanking God for the fact that the child's birth is the result of our pleasure, of our having felt good. But it's God who's the one who actually makes it happen. Rav Yaakov Emden, the great Rav Yaakov Emden, writes in, his, uh, in one of his farm, 
the Gemara that this is the reason why there's no bracha recited before intimacy. If the principle of the Gemara is that you have to make a bracha before you have pleasure, that every time you have what the Torah calls Hana'a, what the Gemara calls Hana'a, you have to thank Hashem if you, don't, if you get Hana'a. So when you, make a, when you eat a pleasurable food, you make a bracha before and say thank you. When you smell a pleasant fragrance, you make a bracha and you say thank you. So why before intimacy don't you make a bracha? Aside from the fact that the whole modesty issue. So uh, the, the Rav Yaakov Emden writes this medrash. Because since we're, the reason we're experiencing the intimacy is our own hana. Every human being can't help but at least feel some hana'a, drive for hana'a in engaging in that act. And therefore, since it's not entirely pure and noble, that's why no bracha is recited beforehand. Anyway, other reasons could be given also. That you can't make a bracha, it might be a bracha levatela. What if it can't be completed, not consummated? Maybe with the invention of modern medicine, little blue pills, maybe uh, today the bracha should be instilled. But uh, in any case, that's why there's no bracha. So these are. What? Right, a bracha achrona. Some maybe want to bench gomel. You know, different, uh, whatever the cases may be. I can't believe I'm going to put this on the internet. I'm in big trouble. People are still listening at the end of this class. In any case, have a fantastic uh, Shabbos, a meaningful uh, Yom HaZikaron, and a wonderful Yom HaTzmaut.